You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And for this episode, uh, really excited to have uh, Rachel Lally, um, who uh, is in uh, Dublin, Ireland. And she, uh, I encountered her work um, with the podcast called Six of One, Half a Dozen of the Other. And uh, it's a really, really fun podcast she does with um, other artists. Uh, in talking about thought experiments and uh, philosophy, really super stuff. Um, but she does a lot. She's definitely a creator. Does um, works in theater. She's a singer, um, actress, thinker, philosopher, activist. Um, Rachel, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ken. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it, thanks for spending the time. Um, the first question we ask, we try to go back to the beginning, is what were you like uh, as as a young as a young child, as as young Rachel? Young Rachel, young Rachel was probably very different to 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 grown up Rachel. I was a chronically shy child, very very quiet. Um, I was a like ferocious reader. I ate books like. I used to go to the library, get loads of books and have them read like that at the end of that day. Um, it used to drive my parents crazy because they'd buy me books and I'd have them finished like half an hour later. Um, and it was like so expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like not a very athletic or outdoorsy kid. I was very much a, a very feminine child. When I was very young, I refused to wear trousers or anything. I would only wear dresses. Um, I, I think I just totally lived in this fantasy world where I was like a princess and I just daydreamed all day and uh, was very imaginative. Loved, always loved dressing up and stories. Um, yeah, but, but much shyer than I am now. I was the kind of child that would kind of sit quietly and take everything in and listen and watch. Yeah, I find that, you know, I asked that question and, um, you know, over this is, uh, you know, over 40 episodes with the podcast. And I find it very interesting because um, most everybody I talk to, there's definitely an element where they kind of um, uh, like isolate themselves a little bit or like, you know, kind of a little bit shy or they, they, they create their own their, their own space uh, to do their own thing. And it sounds like. With some of the comments you mentioned, you just had like, you know, just kind of like a little more of a fantasy kind of imagination, uh, you know, as a young child. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's in fact, it's because I was so shy that that somebody suggested to my mom that I should go and try a, a drama lesson to give me some confidence and make me more outgoing. And I think that backfired massively. <laughs> it backfired. So what, what, was, what was your experience when that when when that happened? Like, did, was that tried then? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I like my, my mom brought me to like a, a speech and drama class and uh, I absolutely loved it. So I just that I got into like theatre and drama at a, at a really young age and I just was really hungry for it. Just wanted to do more and more. So I, like we I grew up in Dublin, but we moved as a family out to the countryside when I was about 11 or 12 years old, like into a really remote part of the Irish countryside. And um then there was no drama classes and there were no dance classes and stuff. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So my parents ended up having to drive me like miles to go to drama lessons and youth theatre and stuff uh, when I was that little bit older. So, yeah, kind of backfired on them a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you needed your space to be able to 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 develop. And um, um, what um, what forms of art? Uh, what forms of art do you, um, you know, participate in? I, is it, you're obviously in, interested in quite a few things, and I view you as, you know, like a creator. I think sometimes creator is a little bit different and, and more useful of, 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 of a word. But, you know, as that went al along with the performance, what type of uh, forms of art did you uh, develop into um, as you got older? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great question. I mean, for, for me, theatre is kind of where things started um, from that. Um, I mean, visual art, I loved. I took art in school. I loved it. Um, and I, I studied theatre kind of all my life right through secondary school or high school, I suppose, in the US. And um, when I finished school, then I, I went to college. I decided um, I had like kind of done some short films and stuff at that stage, had acted in them. And I wanted to know how everything behind the scenes worked. So I decided I was going to study media. So I did a little bit of radio journalism um, TV and camera work. And I went on then to get a diploma in film studies. Um, and then when I finished that, I uh, left college and auditioned for a theatre company and toured around Italy for a year as an actor. And part of that was doing theatre and education in schools. So I got really into that. So that was where my teaching and facilitation comes in. So like passing skills on to other people. And um, like in recent years, then I've got into um, into writing a lot more. I think it was something I was very afraid of for a while. Um, so I've got into kind of writing poetry and spoken word and writing my own scripts and directing and doing different roles in the theatre. So, yeah, kind of a little bit of everything. I also sang with a, a heavy metal band. I guess when you're in the theatre, you kind of end up sort of dancing and singing and doing stuff like that or trying new things, depending on what project you're involved in. So like, I, I love physical theatre, so... Yeah, just kind of lots of stuff kind of sprawls. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm not going to let you get away with just, you know, mention heavy metal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you uh, So so tell us about, I mean, I, I tend to get, uh, I've had a few folks who play, um, who, who play in a metal band sing. A recent guest I had, Sarah Bilt, uh, plays uh, guitar, lead singer, uh, kind of like a soul blues doom uh, metal type type of sound um and uh what's uh, when everybody anybody's a metalhead that i'm talking to i try to find out what what's what's it uh what was it like for you i know as you said it was a short amount of time that that you performed in, in that yeah. band but what was what was that I, I i view it as from let me just say i mean metal for me is a super intense super important outlet particularly live uh when yeah. you know that's available um so uh, talk to us about about metal and your your experience, uh, you know, singing in that band. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been into metal for probably since I was about 14 or, or 15. I think I, I heard a Metallica album for the first time and was like, what is this? Like, this is amazing. And um and it kind of went from there. Like my, I think a lot of my my mother's friends were kind of into heavy metal, and and they used to give me lots of uh, tapes and their old CDs and stuff. And then in school, we kind of had a little like group of misfits, I suppose. We were all very like very good students in school, very intelligent. We were, like weren't much trouble, but I think the teachers kind of disliked that we were all going around with these heavy metal hoodies and. I, I think they were kind of very suspicious of us on, on what we were up to. But um, it was a very inclusive group and we, we all like, you know, tape traded and uh, and swapped CDs and stuff. And uh, and then I, I went to, um, in Ireland, we have like a region uh, in, in Ireland where uh, Gaelic is spoken, still like a very much alive language. And I went to study there to learn to learn Gaelic. Um, as a lot of school people do before their exams. Um, and I met some people there that were also into metal and I got introduced to like a perfect circle for the first time and like that kind of political side of music. And I was just like captivated by it. So um, obviously like we have, um, we have very healthy metal scene here in Ireland, but it is like small, it's quite small like the art scene you kind of see the same people at gigs all the time obviously we've got some great bands we've got primordial and and cruacon and cruacon are who i sang with for a while so my um my partner at the time he like created the band and they were going off to do a gig and they've always had a, a female singer so um so they asked me to to sing with them at one gig and then one gig turned into two and then it was three and we were kind of playing all over the place. It, and it's amazing because like crew can't play, obviously it's like Irish folk music 
but with a with a metal twist. So it it was really nice because it's like very much kind of the lyrics are part of our history and part of our folklore and to kind of be able to play that and sing that on stage to people who who might share it or have similar stories or similar folklore in their own countries um, and you appreciate kind of folk music and like metal fa- fans are like the most amazing fans in the world like they're just so supportive and there's nothing like being on stage when there's like thousands of people like going mental <laughs> underneath uh, so I, I I agree I mean uh talked yeah. about the metal crowd before and just uh, there's something about that intensity you know I actually yeah. uh, send a message to uh, somebody who's a, a friend of mine and I was like well you know I've been doing a lot of walking a lot of stuff has been coming uh, you know just kind of coming up like mm-hmm. uh like physically and mentally and uh she was like, well, I know you're into metal. She's just like, just crank it up and just scream for a little while. You probably haven't screamed for a little while. You probably haven't been to a metal show, which, of course, is the case, you know. Yeah, and yeah. there's just that that kind of like primal intensity that I imagine you tap into. Um, yeah, I think it's like it's interesting that, um, you know, in, in with metal music, we're very, we're, you're very much in touch with the dark side of things as well as as the good and the happy and, and the bright. And it, it, there's a whole spectrum in, in metal. It goes from the deepest, darkest black metal to to like glam and hair metal on a, on a Saturday night when you're when you're ready to have a good time. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's fascinating for me, all the all the genres and all the places that it goes, you know? Yeah. Um, before we get into some other questions, I'm going to ask you one of the big questions that I'm really interested in your answer, Rachel. Um, what is art? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, and we're discussing that a lot at the moment in Ireland because of this whole COVID situation and our government have given a lot of grants to businesses, but none to arts and culture specifically. Oh, no. Yeah, so there's a lot of conversations happening around what is art and what is what is the like specifically what is the value of art and what we contribute as as artists to society. But I mean, art is in everything. You know, it's in the design of your house. It's in the cup that you hold. It's in the music that you listen to when you turn on the radio. It's in the the way that somebody says something. You know, it's. It gives, it, it helps us process and it helps us derive meaning and beauty from things in life. So I think and, that's what it is for yeah, me. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. That's well put. Well, so, and now though, um, in, in, in connection to that, um, what's the, what's, what's the role of art, um, in a pandemic, uh, because I, I talk to guests and some folks are, you know, there's pressures uh, as a creator within the pandemic to create mm-hmm. more things or do I do things online or do I just try to deal with the mental trauma of what's going on in the world right now? And, you know, can I create? So what's what's the role of, you know, of art in a pandemic at present? I think the role in the art, the role of art in a pandemic is is the same role that art has at any other time in life. Like it, it just helps you to to process and to to get meaning and beauty, um, from from your experiences in life. Um, but I think in a pandemic situation, what's been thrown into the focus, it's really highlighted. First of all, like when there is nothing else to do, what do we turn to? We turn to books, we turn to listening to music, we listen to podcasts, we start making things, we start baking and painting and um, and watching films and watching TV shows. So we're massively consuming art at the moment on a level that we maybe wouldn't have time for um, normally. And um, but But at the same time, artists are struggling at a level that they've never struggled at before because we don't have live performances and our our normal ways of connecting with people have changed. Um, we're having to be, although I don't think anyone is better placed than artists to deal with the challenge of that. Um, so like I think many, many amazing things are going to come out of this from artists. But I suppose it throws into question 
what the value of art is, what people are prepared to pay for it, um, and and how they value it in, in monetary terms. Yeah, I think I I, I, I think yeah the, the the factor you bring up at the end of the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think there's different ways to uh, to, to approach this question. And one of the cool things, uh, again, you know, like when I came in contact with, with you and what you do mm-hmm. with your podcast, uh, um, we're the host of, uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other, which is, uh, a really funny, uh, podcast. And, um, I enjoy it. Um, and, uh, so I don't know, like, what how did how did that come about and I, and i love the content because i i i noticed like i'm like how does rachel control these other these other guys and and and, and uh-huh. you know it's like you got to you know it's a bun- it's so fun and the interaction is is really entertaining but i mean how did it come about i mean cuz for me it comes out of the pandemic cuz that's when you started so yeah, why don't you tell yeah. us about why don't you tell us about your podcast yeah so i would be delighted to um yeah, it's been really fun for us. It, it basically came about, um, like, uh, uh, I'm an artist, uh, a drama facilitator, uh, and I have, I'm, like, part of this amazing community in Dublin of artists and poets. Um, so on the podcast, we have myself, uh, the poet Jeff, Emmett O'Brien, who's an incredible spoken word artist, um, and Greg Clifford, who is an artist, like a multidisciplinary artist and uh, and uh, singer songwriter, and um, we're we're all good friends. We're very different, I suppose, um, and we would be used to kind of uh, seeing each other all the time at, at gigs and events, and like every week, nearly normally in when before COVID, um, we would be at one of our gigs, you know, uh, and we'd see each other and always support each other or, you know, have groups that meet to write or to work on different things or like perform at the same festivals and that kind of stuff. So all of that suddenly stopped and we're kind of sitting at home and we were all calling each other quite a bit and like, oh, what you, like you mentioned earlier, this kind of tremendous pressure as an artist to like use the time to create something incredible. And we heard all these stories about, you know, Shakespeare writing a whole play in, in the quarantine. And there was there just felt like there was this tremendous pressure to kind of produce work. So um, I think one of the things I really like about our friendship is how different we are and how and how much we debate with each other. Um, so we'd often like, obviously as artists, I think you're kind of thrown into like the political arena a lot and we're very opinionated and like your art reflects that, like it reflects your position in society and your beliefs. Um, and ours can be very different sometimes. Um, and we, are, we argue and we debate um, and we disagree which is important uh, and we we learn from each other and then it can get very heated sometimes but at the end of the day we can go okay that was a great discussion like would you like a beer <laughs> you know so um so I just thought like having these philosophical questions or thought experiments and putting them to to this group of, of friends and um, who have such very such different positions and different views and, and different backgrounds and stuff um, to debate them um on a podcast i just i didn't know if it would work but i i kind of felt like it would um, and i have so far it's been very funny and it's been really fun and it's actually been very challenging as well like some stuff has come up for us that we've been like oh oh gosh i didn't expect that to come out like what are gonna what will people think you know um that i've said that or yeah it's it's been very interesting really really good fun and like people have been really enjoying it so we're into our fourth episode just got released this week and, and we're recording them week by week um yeah so hopefully it will continue i think it will well in in you're all a bunch of smart asses which is makes it a lot of fun yeah well we're irish artists so <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I know when we're when we're thinking about this this program and i'm like king smart ass and like sometimes you know get into that i was like 
man, I I'm not gonna try to duplicate what they're doing because they got that they got that brew already put together. It's so <laughs> snappy. It's so snappy. Like you have to be on it because like like everyone is so uh, sharp. Everyone's so sharp, and uh, and the guys are great fun, and they're so funny as well. Like everyone just comes out with stuff that is completely or like we start with a question and then we end up talking about something completely different by the end of it. <laughs> we go off on these tangents, but we let well, that. I- I think that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I spent time uh, in in Boston, you know, and uh, there's there's still the good old Irish American, you know, streak uh, out there and out there in Boston. It's just it's just a great kind of uh, familiarity and just kind of joking about a lot of things. And I mm-hmm. always really uh, I, I enjoy that um, atmosphere. Um, so, uh, Rachel, um, you know, part of what I try to do on the on the program is to kind of have, um, you know, if possible, the kind of performative piece um, that that the guest has done. And you've done um, a spoken word uh, poem that I'm going to yeah. that I'm going to play in just just a few moments. But um, and it's about uh, it's about uh, Ireland in um, a program with the uh, direct uh, provision. Could you give a little bit of background um, about you know um, about that that policy or that program, and also how the you know your spoken word piece came about, and then we'll play it. Yeah. So, um, di- direct provision is a is a system that we have in Ireland for people who are who arrive in Ireland seeking asylum. So, um, basically, the the intention of direct provision is to provide uh, to provide for people while their applications for um, for refugee status and for citizenship in Ireland um, are being processed. Um, unfortunately, the system is really barbaric and and quite horrific if you start talking to people who've had to live within the system. So how I personally uh, got to know about it is because the theatre company, uh, Crooker House Theatre Company and Kildare Youth Theatre that I worked with in Kildare, um, our premises was very close to a direct provision centre in uh, in Kildare in Ireland. And um, so we were in contact with, with people who lived in the direct provision system. So it often means that there are families or or groups of of eight people or sometimes more, sometimes less, sharing a, a room the size of a hotel room, um, and that's that's a hotel room in Ireland, not the size of a motel room in the US. Uh, so smaller again, um, with no privacy, um, with no facilities, they're not allowed to cook for themselves. Um, their the amount of money they have to live on each week is is quite low. It has improved slightly, but it could improve more. Um, children are allowed to go to school, but I after after high school, if you want to study, um, it can be quite difficult in terms of like paying fees and um, and and traveling. A lot of these centres are in very remote places in Ireland it's very hard for people who are living there to to integrate, obviously, because they don't have the money to to just go out and, and, and get coffee or make friends or <laughs> do any of those things. Um, it's, it's a really horrible system and I think it, it's really shameful. Um, it's it's so it's so embarrassing and shameful for me as an Irish person to to know that this is going on in my country and that children are growing up uh, in, in this kind of regime, in this in this system that really like dehumanizes them and and doesn't serve to let people reach their potential. And I just don't understand why we can't process people's applications faster and uh, and give them more dignity and there is kind of um there are a lot of irish people who are not aware of the direct provision system and there's a lot of myths um that people believe that you know that uh, asylum seekers coming into the country get free houses and they get free cars and they get free buggies for their babies and they get free this that and the other and they don't understand that the, re- the reality is very very different and that these people are often very depressed because they they can't work, they can't cook, they like they have no control over over their own lives. 
um, and and that for me is is shameful. So um, yeah, so I think there's a movement at the moment in Ireland to to end the direct provision system, which I would very much support. Yeah. So the poem is about is about that, and the reason that I wrote it is is to explain to people maybe who don't who don't know in Ireland what what life is like for someone living in that system. Yeah, thank you, uh, Rachel. Thanks, thanks for that background too. I just want to make sure all listeners, you know, get get a get a sense of it. And like you said, a lot of folks over there by you in Ireland aren't particularly familiar with it, which obviously allows, um, you know, mistruths to fester. And we know that process, right? With yeah, lack yeah, of I'm sure they do. And I yeah. think as well, like another another point is like I think as well in our in Ireland, and I'm sure in other countries as well, we're very good at saying like, oh, look at the U.S. and the way people are treated in the U.S. and way they treat immigrants and and in other countries and we're doing great but they don't look at what is actually happening here and that it is as bad if not worse you know what I mean that we have to start with ourselves absolutely uh okay thanks Rachel I'm gonna play the um the indirect prison uh the spoken word poem and then after that we'll come back and uh, chat some more great Refusing Russian rebels was never an option. Accepting meant conscription, certain death, refusal, execution. So there weren't any options left. Their departure was arranged in hushed tones. Contacts called, belongings sold, papers made, money exchanged. This couple and their baby, two years old, who's about to be estranged from her wider family to cross the border to a land with more opportunity. The babies passed round to everyone. Her grandma says, just one more kiss. She can't believe that it's come to this. They board the bus and there's no going back. Everything they own is in their arms and this rucksack. At the border, the couple is silent. They hold their breaths as they both hear sirens grinding to a halt. A guard arrives examining the papers of all the people traveling. They hand theirs over, trembling. What if he noticed how my hand shook? He's giving theirs a second look. They think it's over and the game is up. Their pounding hearts make minutes seem like years. The guard takes their papers and disappears. They wait and it's no fun. Unable to move, unable to run. They shift uneasily in 36 degrees with no breeze and after an hour or two they need to pee but the only toilet on the borders flooded over with cigarettes and contraband left in desperate acts of desperation by people like them. A few hours more and they're full of dread. Why is the guard not back yet? This is a reminder that these are the lucky ones who have the money to run on this trip that they're taking. Not like the working classes hiding in freight trains fraught with danger or lying in the boot of a car or 10 families deep in a shipping container with children medicated and screaming or locked for days in industrial freezers or boats jam-packed with women and children that hit waves and capsize killing dozens too sick to swim and tired leaving their loved ones traumatised as they reach for bodies falling further and further out of reach into the darkness beneath, into oblivion. Yeah, they're glad that that's not them. All these families fleeing right-wing ideologies subjected to regimes of fear and persecution, countries where they are considered less than human, tortured, broken, forced, and at the wrong end of a mine or a shotgun. So when the guard again makes an appearance, their hearts soar with cautious relief and reassurance. He hands them back their passport in a hurry and he wishes them a pleasant journey. On our soil, Irish soil, they land safely with her, exhausted, dehydrated and starving. You'd think we'd remember the legacy of our famine. They open their mouths and together plead asylum. 
but for them this is not the end this is just the beginning because now they must endure the purgatory that is direct provision you see, to me, direct provision sounds like something you might like to see. A direct train to those in need full of comfort and provisions, trying to heal what hurt can be healed after what just happened. Direct provision centers are the Magdalene laundries of our generation, where we keep those we'd rather not deal with in endless incarceration. No man, woman or child can develop or thrive inside the four walls of a hotel room, day in, day out with nothing to do. Remember their two-year-old baby? Imagine she's six now and she has a brother and they live in the same hotel room since then with their father and mother and they go to school but not the parties they're invited to. Mom and dad are sick of saying no. They're resourceful but there's only so far 3880 will go. Their room door can't be locked for health and safety. In six years, she doesn't understand the word privacy. Mom and dad can't own a fridge and they can't work. And the bathroom's shared, so even when you shower, there's a knock. No sleepovers, no visitors, no Wi-Fi and no pets. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of it. Their application isn't processed yet and no one can tell them how long it takes. Some people have been here for five years, six, seven, eight. It goes on and on, and the worst part her mother tells me is the boredom. I just want a reason to get up in the morning. I've tried everything. I'm useful. I've tried teaching Russian for free and volunteering. I want to study. I just want to integrate. And I don't know what to say. I can see her hope, and her mind is eroding away. And I can't imagine raising a family like this, with no space, holidays, no rest, Netflix, no days out with the kids, no money even for Christmas gifts. And it breaks my heart that there are children in my country who don't know any better than this. This family story has a good ending. Seven years later and their mother is graduating, their father is working and they have a house of their own. They have a home. There are others still waiting. I walk past that building and I think of my friend Rico, who waited and waited until all of his teenage years were eradicated. They were taken from him. Forced to share a room with five strange men that he hated, but forced him to pray three times a day. But he wasn't religious. All he wanted to do was come and hang out with us until he got tired of waiting and ran away. And I still don't know where he is to this day. The last I heard, he paid for fake papers and went to London. And I can't say I goddamn blame him. Or happy. He's the same age as me and in the same hotel room. She grew up, fell in love and had a son. Or the old man who got sick because his medication belonged in a fridge and he didn't have one. So next time you see Trump's cages on the front pages and children sobbing and you like me feel sick, remember we are not doing much better than this and ask the TDs and ministers why it takes so long to process applications in a country that is this goddamn small and why are private companies running private lives and making it profitable. It's time we put an end to children growing up in prison and it's time we called it that instead of direct provision. Thank you for that, Rachel. You're welcome. Yeah, I wish it didn't have to be written, but there you go. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, stuck out to me, even particularly at the end there, is that kind of pernicious, um, you know, private companies coming in. You know, we have uh, yeah. uh, a system within in within the United States Um you know, within uh, some aspects of privatization within the prison system, um, you know, in, in, in the U.S., it's the highest per capita incarceration rate in the history of the world. And, um, you know, there's a lot of private, you know, hands in that, which, you know, really makes the situation a lot worse because 
you know, as as you and I know, they can really achieve their profits by what they don't what they don't do, even though they're yeah. contracted to provide those services. So it seems to me that's going to that must create a really pernicious effect as you see it. Yeah, like like I said, there's just it, there's a lot of people who are who are not aware of this of that situation here, and they're not aware that of the companies and and the and the other franchises or the other uh, enterprises that they run, and how we are maybe supporting them inadvertently by by using their services elsewhere. Um, and I just think you know whenever you have that that thing of a, of a profit or you have an imbalance of power, you are going to have oppression, and and that's very much what we can see in that system. Uh, Rachel, if I could take a moment to just mention, I mean, the got a question regarding, you know, the role of 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 art in addressing, you know, or addressing, disrupting, dismantling uh, racism. Um, and if I could just take a moment, you know, here now in in the United States, we're amidst you know, basically the largest, um, you know, uh, uh, uprising for civil rights in, uh, some say in, you know, more than, than, than half a century. Um, and it's uh, continuing, uh, and growing. It takes many forms of resistance. Um, but it's also becoming, uh, you know, uh, extremely politically, um, uh, divisive and, and violent. You know, I live in the state Oregon where it's very, um, how shall I put it? Uh, just very, you know, loose around, um, you know, ability to, you know, carry, you know, arms and rifles. And so it's, you know, almost at points armed conflict with, you know, kind of the uh, right wing, um, you know, Trump, uh, type of thinking, uh, fascism. Um, and so it's a really tense time. And I, I find that there's so much, uh, that is changing. There's been some, uh, you know, results in challenging, um, the, the role of police, uh, who have basically, you know, been able to murder or injure, um, African-American uh, people in this country for quite some time. Um, in role in, in, in art now and in, in what, uh, is created um, seems to have, you know, the question behind it, you know, what are you doing to address, you know, the history of racism, uh, you know, in a country or, you know, whiteness versus, you know, the, the other, these type of constructs. Um, you live, you know, you, you, you live in Ireland um, and you're an artist. I mean, what, what do you feel what what what's going on there, and what do you feel the role of art is in you know addressing these historical injustices? Um, well, I can I can only speak uh, about about myself. So I think firstly, our our role is to listen, um, our and our role is to make space for for other people to tell their stories and to share their experiences and and for that space to happen. And that's um, that's the the major priority at the moment here. Um, art always has a role in, in politics and, and artists and art is political. Like I'm very much with Augusto Boal on this when he says that, that you know, actors, they, they act, we act in society and that theatre and an art is a rehearsal for for action and a, a way of exploring the the society we would like to see. And through art we can we can have conversations, generate discussions, give voice to the voiceless. And I think this is why theatre and uh, spoken word are so close to my heart is because anybody can get up anywhere to do theatre and to perform poetry and to speak and to share that with the public. We don't need stages. And that's very much the conversation at the moment with COVID is that we, we don't need the physical space. It's lovely to have that. It's lovely to have the theatres. But, but the thing about theatre is that anyone can make it. It's for everybody. It's uh, it's democratised and that that anyone can get up and speak and have the space to share their story and their experience and that uh, that our that our role as of uh, as artists is is to facilitate that and to provide that and 
And then the other, like in a wider perspective, um, as artists, we can question. Uh, engaging in art um, gives us lots of skills, like like empathy, like listening, like being aware, like critically thinking about looking at different structures, about examining history and, and power and, and all of those things. So, Rachel, um, one of the big questions I ask is what, you know, why, you know, why do you create? And, uh, you know, that's that's the question. But really, you know, in the context, I know we talked about COVID. We talked about, you know, within, um, you know, the role of art in addressing uh, racism. And I know that's kind of shaken up the question of like, you know, why do you create? How much should I be creating? What's the role of art? But yeah, you ever ask that fundamental question of, you know, why do you create and do you feel compelled to create as a as as an artist i i create because i can't not create (laughs) um i i I honestly don't know how to stop um it's it's the way i i make sense of things it's what brings me joy it gives me purpose and like i just have to be working on something um whatever it is um, and maybe part of that is connecting with other people or, or making sense for myself, uh, what's going on in, in my own life and my own head. But for me, I create because I, I have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, going to go right to, to the big question now, right after that one is exactly. why is there something? question. <laughs> yeah, I know. But this is this is the one where people get a little angry at me for asking why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, there's always something. That actually reminds me of I was in a, a teaching this class once um, was like theatre skills to uh, a group of students and um, they were people who had dropped out of the school system and uh, they were trying to re. Uh, sort of get get some kind of education and, and be introduced to the education system again and encourage sure. to pass exams. And uh, they, they were very resistant to theatre. I think a lot of it came from uh, a lot of insecurities or, or feeling that maybe theatre was something elitist that didn't belong to them or that their voices didn't have a place to be heard. But anyway, um, I, I went into them one day and nothing was working and, and they said they didn't want to do anything. And I was like, OK, like, let's do nothing. And I was like, no, you're not doing nothing. You're moving and you're talking and you're and like suddenly I was like, there's there's lots of stuff happening, but it's definitely not nothing. So I don't I don't think you can have nothing. <laughs> Yeah, and I, 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 I appreciate that, too. And, you know, even the question itself, um, at least scientists are those more empirically driven point to mm-hmm. the, the question is even more properly stated as how is there something rather than nothing? Um, but, um, yeah, I always I always like like that big one and particularly is applied to to art in the um, yeah. the active. I probably think that nothing is is impossible. So Rachel, um, uh, how can I, I, I get the listeners here? Um, I want uh, to do a couple things here at the end is, um, can you let folks know how to connect, uh, to all your, you know, to your creations? Um, I know, um, you do a lot of different work. Um, can you lead folks along uh, those lines? And also, um, at the end, um, we have a you know a piece of music from uh, one of your co-collaborators uh, on uh, on your podcast uh, six of one half a dozen the other uh, Greg Clifford. If you could just kind of tell us a you know uh, maybe uh, briefly just about the other uh, the rest of the gang that's on the podcast and particularly Greg and we'll go out with that uh, track. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best way for people to connect with me is probably through Instagram. So it's Rachel Lally Four. That's or A C H E L L A L L Y. All the L's and just the number four. Um, and I, I share a lot of what I'm up to on a daily basis and uh, in terms of my artistic work on Instagram. And you can find other details of social media and stuff there. 
and the podcast is six of one half a dozen of the other and it's on all good podcasting platforms but um i recommend you follow us on youtube because um, we do record video every week and i have been editing them and stuff and adding little funny graphics and things so it is kind of worth watching it on youtube if you can sit down with a cup of tea or or a beer and and join us there and um and on the podcast it's myself the poet jeff Emmett O'Brien and Greg Clifford and you'll find all of their social media details um, underneath our videos on YouTube as well and then uh, the track that we're going to play now is one of Greg's tracks um, and you can find him on Spotify um, and this is um, a track from a new album that he's working on which I, I think is one of the most beautiful um pieces of work that he's worked on so far and certainly one of the most honest pieces so i i personally love it so that's why i chose it today so i hope you enjoy yeah thanks thanks so much uh rachel thanks so much for your time uh it's it's great to it's really great to chat with you and um really enjoy the program and i do concur you gotta watch you gotta what you do great work on the watching uh (laughs) the interaction yeah Uh, so i definitely uh uh, recommend that but um yeah thank you so much for your time um it's been a great pleasure to talk with you and um really really nice i enjoyed it so much yeah, thanks, Rachel. Hey, we're going to play that track now, Greg Clifford. Um, I believe the name of the track, sorry, uh, is Open Fire, as Open I have fire. it. That's it, yeah, yeah. Open Fire. Let's play it. And uh, thanks again, Rachel. Thank you so much. Open fire upon my heart, limb from limb, on apart. Oh, now check yourself before you do something you regret. Come on, darling, express yourself. Don't you leave me hanging with these regrets. This ship is sinking. My head's a mess. My head's a Transform, acquiesce, chasm growing, we digress. Sweet, sweet serenity constantly eluded me. Won't you come on, darling? Express yourself. Don't you leave me hanging with these regrets. This ship is sinking. Come on, darling, express yourself. Don't you leave me hanging with these regrets. This ship is sinking. My head's a mess. My head's a mess. Won't you come on, darling, expose yourself. Don't you leave me hanging on When you've been with someone else Our ship is sinking My head's a mess My head's a mess Open fire Well, thank you, uh, Greg, and Thank you, uh, Rachel, so kindly. Um, uh, I hope you have a great end of the work week and stay safe and uh, stay safe the best you can in uh, Dublin. Thank you so much, Will. I'm off. I'm off for a swim now in the freezing cold sea. Uh, that sounds uh, strangely fantastic. <laughs> uh, 
I, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, thanks again, Rachel. You and you take care. Thanks, I wish Ken. Bye now. Bye. This is Ken Vellante. I uh, wanted to tell you about a great podcast, uh, Panoptic Podcast. And uh, a couple guys uh, do this, and it's, it's a really great uh, philosophy podcast um, done by uh, Juan Pablo Mello and uh, Jason Margaritas. And um, uh, long, it's a conversations between critical theorist and a management consultant and uh, really great uh, listen um, and kind of giving you really a, a great uh, conceptual sense of what's going on. Um, they describe it as such. Uh, we made this podcast to continue exploring the intersections of our respective disciplines in a way that might, others might find useful. Panoptic relates theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. And uh, really worth a listen. Again, Panoptic uh, podcast. Um, and uh, take your time. It's on all the uh, major uh, venues for, um, for podcasts. Panoptic podcast. Also, I uh, wanted to give a shout out and a mention to my brother, Chris Vellante, uh, who uh, works in um, the financial industry, but also uh, is a coach uh, for, for running. As a matter of fact, he's going to be the new uh, coach for Groton Dunstable. A high school boys team out there in Massachusetts and uh, he has a he does a, a coaching uh, program uh, that helps runners you know train for road races uh, various distances uh, create a plan to address or return from in uh, from injury and also to just kind of help train with you know nutrition and uh, you know basically uh, set out a plan uh, to accomplish your running goals so that's uh, Volante Running, and uh, you can find him most easily uh, on Facebook under Volante Running. He is Victor O L A N T E, and that's my brother uh, Chris Volante. Uh, thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this program.